reading of Scripture today comes from the book of Daniel as we continue our series in this. Daniel chapter 4. Would you please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word? We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4 through verse 27. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering, in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he whose name he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. 
the tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such and be seated. Pride comes before the fall. This is a saying based on a biblical text that has slipped into popular speech. This is something we say to warn someone that is being prideful, meaning that they should watch out because one day they're going to get their due and they're going to be humble. If you know your Proverbs well, you know that this is somewhat of a misquote of Proverbs 16, 18, which actually says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a great fall or a fall. This is a proverb which warns us against a prideful spirit which ultimately leads to our destruction and our falling. In this passage of Daniel today, Nebuchadnezzar gives us a prime example of pride and a haughty spirit and with that, the destruction and fall which are to ensue. Through looking at Nebuchadnezzar's pride, we have the pride of our own hearts exposed. While none of us, like Nebuchadnezzar, are kings of the literal whole world, I think each and every one of us struggles and sees ourselves as the kings and queens of our own little worlds. With Nebuchadnezzar, we will see that the only, the only true and living God, he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords, and that he alone is worthy of our allegiance and worship. For his kingdom alone is everlasting, even as we'll see Nebuchadnezzar proclaiming. With Nebuchadnezzar, we'll learn, though, that the only escape from the pride of our hearts and the destruction which it brings is through repentance and faith, taking shelter in Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom, which cannot be shaken. To that end, to the breaking down of our pride and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom, 
We are going to look at this passage under three headings. First, we're going to consider Nebuchadnezzar's praise, verses 1 through 3. Second, we'll consider Nebuchadnezzar's pride, verses 4 through 18. And lastly, we'll consider Nebuchadnezzar's punishment. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's praise, his pride, and his punishment. Let's look at that first point, his praise. Now understand, this passage begins in retrospect of the narrative which is going about to be told. Nebuchadnezzar begins with a typical kingly greeting. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This is not the first time in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar has addressed himself to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. At the beginning of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar made a decree to all peoples, nations, and tongues that when they heard the music sounded, they were to fall down and worship the big golden idol statue which he set up. If you recall, at the end of chapter 3, after God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar from the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar made another decree that if anyone from any people, nation, or tongue speaks a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their house made into a dung heap. In the repetition of these addresses to all peoples, nations, and tongues, there is a noticeable progression which we are to see. The first decree was in, was in antagonism to the Most High God. He was calling on the people to worship a false god against the will of the true and living God. The second decree forbid any antagonism against the Most High God. Nobody can speak a word against this God. But now in chapter 4, we see a step further. He again addresses all peoples, nations, tongues. Yet, his address in this case is in service to praising the true God. He says to all these people, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me, for the purpose of bringing about praise. Nebuchadnezzar has moved from antagonism against the Most High God to forbidding any antagonism against the Most High God, and now to actively praising and promoting the worship of the Most High God. Notice another change. Nebuchadnezzar has consistently identified God as Daniel's God, the God who revealed a mystery to Daniel, and as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered them from his hand. But here he begins to identify himself with God, saying that it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. He recognizes that God had a purpose in doing these signs and wonders for him, and that is to elicit praise from him. And that's just an important pastoral point to make for a second, that it's not enough to talk about the, what God has done for your fathers or your parents. You have to say what God has done for me in Christ. It's an important thing that you can affirm that these promises and this revelation is for you, which he gives to you in his word. But that's just an aside. So here in verse 3, though, he proclaims, How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. This is a different sounding Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, God had given him that vision, remember, of that statue which had a head of gold and then it decreased in value of other metals in saying that your kingdom will be succeeded by other kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar. And eventually, I am going to cut a stone, not by human hands, which is going to strike the feet of that statue and I am going to establish an everlasting messianic kingdom. That's how the first vision went. But we remember when Nebuchadnezzar wanted to commemorate this vision, he decided to make a statue all of gold, not just the head, to show that, no, my kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Yet here, Nebuchadnezzar praises God and affirms that, in fact, it is God's kingdom which is everlasting, and it is God's dominion that endures from generation to generation. What is the nature of of these signs and wonders that they brought about such a change in this king's attitude. Certainly God miraculously revealed himself when he gave the vision and the understanding to Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And certainly he miraculously saved his servants and delivered them from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. These are certainly signs and wonders But the interesting thing is, what Nebuchadnezzar is going to focus on, the sign and wonder he wants to give attention to, to all peoples, nations, and languages, is his extreme humiliation, which the Lord brings about to him. As is the pattern of the gospel, we'll see that humiliation leads to exaltation and God himself getting all the praise. Does this narrative remind you of another part of scripture a narrative to which in which a god shows his wisdom and power to a pagan king and brings deliverance to his people and praise to his name in exodus 7 the lord speaks to moses about the deliverance that he will bring for his people from the hand of pharaoh and says to him you shall speak all that i command you and your brother aaron shall tell pharaoh to let the people of israel go out of his land But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Signs and wonders, but a hardening of heart. Later on in Exodus 9, the Lord tells Pharaoh the reason for this, saying, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. But here, in Daniel 4, we see God again revealing himself to a pagan king through signs and wonders, the same language used in Exodus. But rather than Nebuchadnezzar's heart being hardened, it seems that the Lord is softening his heart. But the result is the same. The Lord is praised throughout all the earth, even as Nebuchadnezzar sends out a decree praising the God of all the earth to all the earth. Whether in judgment for his justice or in salvation for his grace, God gets all the glory. This is the dynamic which Paul reflects on in Romans 9 through 11. Paul didn't make up the doctrine of predestination. He's reflecting richly on the biblical narrative that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills, but both serve to bring him glory. 
What do we learn from these two narratives which have great parallels but also contrasts? Is there injustice with God, as Paul might ask? Certainly not. Both of these pagan kings were great sinners like us, worthy of God's just judgment. One got justice, the other got mercy, but in neither case was there injustice. Should we just give up and since it's up to God, we can't do anything about it either way? Again, certainly not. In Romans 10, Paul goes on to explain that the word is near you. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. But to each of you here, what I'm trying to say, that word of faith is being proclaimed to you as it is being preached. And I extend to you the promise of God spoken through the words of Paul, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do not harden your heart like Pharaoh did at the revelation of God and his power and his knowledge and his wisdom, but rather soften your heart and receive the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. The word is near you. But sometimes, because of the pride of our heart, we refuse to acknowledge the Lord and must be humbled, which brings us to our next point. We've just looked at Nebuchadnezzar's praise. Now let's consider Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Remember that the first three verses that we just looked at were spoken by Nebuchadnezzar after the events that he's going to tell us about in this decree. Now he begins to describe the signs and wonders which happened to him and brought about his change of heart. So he begins a first-person account in verses 4 through 5. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies in the visions of my head alarmed me. He begins by giving us a, a general picture of how he was enjoying the accomplishments of his kingdom. Uh, we don't know exactly when these events happened. It doesn't give us in the narrative. But from how he's speaking, this came after some of his military conquests. He's having ease. Maybe he's built the hanging gardens. And he's enjoying all of this. And he said he was at ease and prospering. Now the word prospering is actually used for in other parts of the Bible for trees when they are abundant and leafy and when they are fruitful and green. An interesting point to keep in mind when we're about to hear a narrative of a tree that is cut down. He was prospering like a tree, and then a tree will be cut down. As in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream which frightens him and a vision which makes him alarmed. And as with chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree and calls all the wise men of the land of Babylon, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, and they came before him. Unlike chapter 2, you remember where Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to give the dream and the interpretation. Here he follows the usual protocol, and he's willing to give them the dream. He just wants them to tell him the interpretation. But we're told that they could not make it known to him. Could not make the interpretation known. One wonders if they really couldn't have made a, a, an educated guess as to what this pointed to. No, it's likely that they recognize that this is a pretty negative dream, and I don't want to be the guy to tell Nebuchadnezzar that you're about to be chopped down. 
I think they were probably just being a little reticent for that reason. But in any case, verses 8 through 9 state, At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Considering his past experience, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar would have bypassed all the other wise men that he wanted to have killed and just go straight to Daniel to get the answer of this dream. But we're told that Daniel came in last of all. From a narrative perspective, this adds anticipation as the reader is aware of what happened formerly and what's going to happen now. From a theological perspective, though, God is the one who has orchestrated all of these events, and he brings it about so that all of the other wise men fail. Their gods fail. They can't give the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. All of them fail. But at last, Daniel comes in. The Lord sovereignly orchestrated this whole situation to put down the false gods of the Babylonians and their wise men. The text is clear that Nebuchadnezzar remembers Daniel and what he has done, say, saying that in him, the spirit of the holy gods, that's just a way to say that he has a connection with divinity, with some of the gods. That's a, a Babylonian way of saying this man is godly, spiritual, and has connections. And he says nothing is too difficult, and he refers even to no mystery is too difficult, the words which were used earlier uh, for his revelation. Indeed, Daniel had been promoted over the province of Babylon and is here described as a chief of the magicians. Now, from that, we don't need to think that Daniel dabbled in the dark arts. This is just a term to say that he was among the wise men, and the magicians were an example group of that. And it's saying that Daniel was a chief among them, recognized as superior to them. It's more like an official title recognizing his status over the other wise men. In verses 10 through 17, Nebuchadnezzar describes the content of his dream to Daniel, which revolves around a great tree. He says, They saw a tree which grew strong with its top reaching to the heavens, and its fruit abundant, its leaves full. It was visible to all the earth. As such, this tree is pictured as being in the center of the earth, with all the earth looking to it. And we have some indications through archaeology and stuff like that, that the Babylonians on their maps and stuff would actually picture Mesopotamia as at the heart of the earth. And it seems that this tree is being depicted like that as well, with the idea that all the earth looked to it. Not only is this tree pictured as prominent, but also prosperous. It has beautiful leaves. Its fruit is abundant. As such, the wild animals, they take shelter under it. The birds of the air nest in its branches. And all flesh get its food from it. But here is where the dream takes a turn. Verse 13 states, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. The word translated as watcher, as you might guess, has the idea of being awake, of wakefulness. It refers to someone like a watchman 
on a tower standing guard. In later Jewish tradition, this is a title for angels. This watcher is described further as a holy one, a name which in Deuteronomy 33 and Zechariah 14 is used to refer to God's angels, his heavenly host. So what we are seeing here, this vision of a watcher, is an angel sent from the Lord in heaven. In verses 14 through 15, we're told that the watcher makes a proclamation saying, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Notice that there's not one aspect of this tree which is left unaffected. It is to be chopped down. Its leaves are to be lopped off. Its fruit is to be scattered. No longer is it suitable for shelter or a source of sustenance. Yet there is a root which is to remain in the earth, which is to be bound with a band of bronze and iron, indicating that there is not complete destruction and that there is some preservation and hope for recovery. Notice the shift which takes place in the second half of verse 15. It switches from the impersonal it, referring to the tree, to the personal him in reference to the stump, which is to remain. So the angel states, Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods pass over him. The stump represents a man who is reduced to bestial existence. He is to be dwell in the grass, sleeping in the night and waking up covered with the dew of the grass. Like a beast, he is to eat of the herbage of the earth. In accordance with this bestial habitat, he is to have his mind changed from that of a man to that of a beast. The word translated as mind has a broader meaning in Aramaic and in Hebrew. It refers to the heart as the seat of emotions, of intellect, and of moral reasonings. In other words, this is talking about all of his faculties. This is a complete transition which is to last until seven periods of time pass over him. Likely, the seven periods refers to seven whole years. The watcher gives the reason for all of this, though, in verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This sentence comes from the angel as representing the Most Holy God as he has set them to watch over the kingdoms of man, even as we'll see later in Daniel in these later chapters, how the angels watch over the kingdoms. The purpose of the sentence is to humble all the living, even kings demonstrating that it is the Lord God Most High who sets kings up and who brings them down. This sentence will be an object lesson in which to show Nebuchadnezzar his own mortal weakness. Nebuchadnezzar concludes his narrative saying in verse 18, This dream I, 
king Nebuchadnezzar saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. As Nebuchadnezzar began, so he ends this section. Two things are highlighted and repeated. First, Nebuchadnezzar's absolute confidence in Daniel's ability to give the interpretation of this dream. And second, the absolute failure and inability of his other wise men to give this interpretation. Again, this is a way of exalting the Most High God. For the fourth time in the book thus far, the way is set up for God's servants to be honored and for his name to be exalted in the courts of Babylon. Throughout all of this narrative, we see the consequences of pride. Prior to this dream, God has given three miraculous opportunities for Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sin and to humble himself before the Lord. While he recognized the miracles of the Lord and has even honored the Lord's servants, he has not yet humbled himself before the Lord and bowed down and worshipped him and him alone, exalting him over himself. Because of his pride and reluctance to recognize his kingdom and his authority, the Lord is going to humble Nebuchadnezzar in the extreme. While in many ways Nebuchadnezzar's case is a special one, with direct revelations and miracles, yet in other ways it's quite ordinary. To break Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he will be brought through major suffering. Perhaps this is the case for you as well. But if not, spare yourself of such experience. Each week, as you come and hear the preaching of God's word, like Nebuchadnezzar having four opportunities, how many more opportunities have you had as you come and hear the reading and preaching of God's word? He is giving you the opportunity to humble yourself before him and bow down and exalt him and lower yourself. That's why you come to worship, to remind you that you are but dust and you're sinful dust. And you need to humble yourself before the Lord and exalt Him, or else He is going to humble you. One of my favorite songs by Johnny Cash. Sooner or later, God is going to cut you down. You can run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. This is your opportunity, week in and week out, as we have the confession of sin, as we read God's law. It is to humble the pride of our hearts, and to bring us to faith in Christ and to exalt the Lord in his kingdom. Think of all the opportunities God has given you to do this. Do not be like Nebuchadnezzar. Do not make it the case that the Lord must humble you in such a way. But in Nebuchadnezzar's case, this was necessary. Which brings us to our next and last point. We've just looked at Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Now let us consider his punishment. The content of the dream having been given in Nebuchadnezzar's request of being of Daniel being made, we now see Daniel's response. He says in verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. 
The first thing to note is Daniel's sincere concern for this pagan king. He's not dismayed and alarmed because he can't interpret the dream. He's dismayed and alarmed because he has interpreted the dream and he knows that it is an awful in the extreme. He understands the dream and he's dismayed and alarmed on behalf of the king. In fact, the same word used of Nebuchadnezzar as being alarmed by the dream is what is said here, that Daniel is alarmed. He's sharing in the situation of this king. He's living out what Jeremiah called on the people to do to seek the prosperity of the nation. He actually cared for this pagan king. It's a good example. If the wise men of Babylon were concerned for themselves and did not offer an interpretation, Daniel hesitates because of his concern for Nebuchadnezzar. In turn, Nebuchadnezzar tells him to not let the dream or its interpretation alarm him. And in testimony to his sincerity, Daniel says that may the dream be for my king's enemies instead. In answer to the king's request, Daniel begins to recount the dream and gives its interpretation. The tree with its tops in the heavens visible to all the earth with its branches giving shade to the beasts of the field and shelter to the birds of the air. This tree represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, which has become great. In reference to the tree being chopped down, the root being bound, and him having his portion with the beasts of the field, Daniel states in verses 24 through 25, This is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High God which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The basic interpretation of the tree representing a kingdom and its chopping down as a degradation of the kingdom would likely have been obvious to the other wise men. They probably got that much. that This represents a king and his kingdom. The concept of a cosmic tree representing a kingdom was known in the ancient Near East, and it's even used in other parts of the Bible. But the matters regarding the, the bound stump and him being made like a beast for a certain period of time, that was less evident. So Daniel tells him that it is a decree of the Most High that Nebuchadnezzar will be driven from men and dwell with beasts until he comes to know that it is the Most High who rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Yet even in this just judgment, there is still mercy. Daniel says in verse 26, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rolls. The image of the binding of the stump with the metal and the switch to the personal pronoun of he who will have his portion with the beast was perhaps the most perplexing part of the dream. But Daniel reveals that the ominous binding of the stump actually represents the Lord's sovereign preservation of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. While he is being punished, while he is cast away from his kingdom for seven years, the Lord will preserve Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom until the time that he acknowledges that heaven, that is God, rules. Having given the interpretation, Daniel now boldly advises the king. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. 
Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. At this point, Daniel's job has been done. He gave the interpretation of the dream. That's all the king had asked for. But in compassion, he calls on Nebuchadnezzar to break off from his sins by practicing righteousness, leaving his iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. This is a bold move. Right in the court of the king, while he's already alarmed and disturbed, while he has quite a temper, Daniel tells him, King, you need to break off from your sins. You need to stop living in the luxury that you're living in. You need to help the oppressed and the poor in your land. Stop making them do all your work projects, all these different architecture which Babylon was famous for, no doubt abusing the labor of the poor. You, O king, and I'm being respectful, you need to break off from your iniquities by caring for the oppressed. This was a bold move. But... Daniel understands that in accordance with biblical promises of punishment, there is always attached an implicit promise of forgiveness if he repents. Think of Nineveh. Jonah went and proclaimed to it that in three days you're going to be destroyed. But they humbled themselves, and the Lord spared them, because the Lord had compassion of these many people and even much cattle. This is my favorite ending to a book. Much cattle. But here, Daniel understands the same principle. There is an implicit promise that if you repent, you can avoid this punishment. If you humble yourself, I will exalt you in the proper time. Therefore, Daniel says, there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar heeds Daniel's advice, we will see next week when we look at what actually happens. But here we may consider what we might learn from this warning and prospect of punishment. God has been really patient with Nebuchadnezzar, the man who he raised up to bring his people into captivity. And even with his people in captivity, through his servants, the Lord has revealed his knowledge and power to Nebuchadnezzar, demonstrating that he is the only true and living God, but he has not yet humbled himself and repented. Up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar has exalted himself and has not humbled himself before the Lord. Here again, the Lord gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream with its interpretation, and through Daniel, he calls on him to repent. Daniel's advice is a wonderful passage summarizing what the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes as repentance unto life. It, it defines it as a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with a full purpose of endeavor after new obedience. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar to turn away from his sins and iniquities and to turn unto God in faith and by practicing righteousness. This is the means by which he might escape God's just judgment. But this repentance unto life, we must remind ourselves, is a gospel grace. It's something that God himself must give. Like Nebuchadnezzar, though, this text calls on us to recognize the pride of our hearts and the selfish and self-indulgent ways that we live 
turn from this and turn to the Lord in faith and to live in a way that is pleasing to him with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. In this passage, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are described as a tree in which the beasts of the field and the birds of the air take shelter. These represent the nations taking shelter and refuge under his protection. But ultimately, that prospering kingdom was cut down. In somewhat mockery of Nebuchadnezzar and his pride, you recall that the Lord said that he rules over the kingdoms of men and sets the lowliest of men over it. That was a comment to humble Nebuchadnezzar, that he is a man just of dust. Yet in the fullness of time, in God's wisdom, God sent forth his son, who humbled himself to take on the form of a servant and to die a death, even the death of the cross. In the eyes of the world, he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, with a form, no form or comeliness that we should desire him. But in God's eyes, he was chosen and precious. Because of his humility, God has highly exalted Jesus Christ and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And when Jesus came on this earth, he said that the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. Very small at the beginning, but it's planted, it becomes greater than all the other trees. And in its branches will the birds of the air take refuge. But Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' tree, will never be chopped down. Jesus' kingdom is still spreading throughout all this earth. And as he is highly exalted, he is still bringing people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nations. In fact, he is sending out that decree to all peoples, all nations, and all tongues. That decree is repent and look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Let us not stubbornly harden our hearts let us not continue in sin, but let us turn from our sins and look to the Lord in faith, by faith and live out our life in love of God and neighbor. In the end, pride leads to punishment, but repentance and faith leads to the praise of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Through his humili humiliation, Jesus has come to exaltation. As we humble ourselves, God has promised in time to exalt us but it's cross before crown. Let us then respond to God's word today, repenting of our pride and looking to our precious Savior who humbled himself for us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the most high God. You are the only true and living God. You are the God who gives the kingdom of men to whom you will. Lord, we pray that we would look to you and that we would exalt King Jesus Christ, that we would humble ourselves, knowing that in the proper time you will exalt us. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted in our worship here today. We pray that you would help us be working in our hearts, even as we come and hear your word, the decree of you, our King, to repent, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or face death, but if we believe to receive eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
We pray, Lord, that this word would not fall on hard hearts week after week, but that you would be chiseling away that rock, that you would be softening. We pray that you would pour forth your spirit and bring confession from our lips. Help us to hear this word today with faith, hope, and love, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, who so richly provided for us, becoming poor that through his poverty we might become rich. Lord, we pray that we would look to him and that we would follow him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray to you. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. We've heard the preaching of God's word as he encourages us to look to Jesus and to look to him. And now we come to the table to receive from the Lord what he has given to us, our spiritual nourishment represented in this bread and this wine. The Apostle Paul, as he reflects on the Lord's Supper and speaks to us about the signs, the ordinary bread and the ordinary wine that represents to us and shows us, reminds us of the sacrifice of the Lord, as he speaks about that, he uses a phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're doing together here this morning. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. On the one hand, we are looking back. We're looking back 2,000 years ago to Jesus giving his body, giving his blood, Jesus whose body is broken on the cross, Jesus whose blood is shed as the fulfillment of all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. We need to look back to that real event that reminds us of the gospel of salvation. But we also proclaim the Lord's death in the present because if you belong to Jesus, you have died with him. You have died with him, and now he calls you to give your life to him, to live as if you are the people of God. But it's a reminder, too, that your sins are forgiven because you have died with Christ. And so this table is not for perfect people. It's for those who recognize they are sinners and now come feeding on the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't let this, these elements pass because you think I'm not worthy. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls you to partake and to draw strength to live your life. But we also proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because it's a reminder of God's promise to us that he will come again. And it's I think reflecting, the Apostle Paul reflecting on that great marriage supper that we will all participate in one day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together and they will be fed by the Lord Jesus Christ there in heaven. But it's a reminder too, who is going to be there? It's going to be all those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. All those who are not his will be outside the gates. And so 
This celebration is for you. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have made a profession, public profession of your faith, if you've been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus and call yourself a member of a Bible-believing church, we welcome you to come. But to reflect and to proclaim as you partake of what God has given to you. The Bible reminds us that Jesus, as he gathered on that night with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Receive the elements, keep them, and we'll partake together.